Let us pray. Gracious Lord, I ask that you take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and make them wholly yours, that today as we come to seriously consider um, this resurrection encounter of Jesus Christ, that you might equip us to critically think and to actively listen so that together we might grow in our capacity to radically love as we've been loved. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I begin today's sermon with a picture from my hometown of Johnson City, Tennessee. and um, It's taken from up on a hill. The, the, the steeple there is, is, belongs to Muncie Memorial United Methodist Church. It's where Amy and I was married and uh, 22 years ago almost. Y'all, that's a long time. There's much more I could say, but I don't think I will. Um, but what I love there is the picture of the mountains in the background. That's really where the mountains start to go, and they just become an endless sea of mountains all the way to North Carolina. And I, I guess I show that to you today because you ever see something, you see it day in and day out, and, and it becomes so familiar to you that you don't really notice it anymore. That happened to me the, my freshman year of college, and then, and then any time I went away from East Tennessee, Having grown up in the beautiful Appalachian Mountains of northeastern Tennessee, I often took for granted just how pretty they were. But it wasn't until I moved someplace that didn't have mountains that I really noticed them and appreciated them for the first time. Now, I guess I share that with you because what was familiar to me had become overlooked. And I promised myself that I would pause more often to appreciate what was in front of me and I think that that same principle holds true for the familiar passages of Holy Scripture. Most of us know the Christmas and Easter stories by heart. We come to worship and, well, we kind of tune out when the Scripture is read or the sermon is preached because the results are always the same, aren't they? On Christmas, Jesus is what? Yes. And on Easter, Jesus is you got it. Why not just leave now and go get breakfast? <laughs> but what if we decided not to overlook the familiar story of Easter? We celebrate today's scripture lesson as the story of the empty tomb. But when we pause and really examine this familiar story, are there not some key pieces of evidence that are screaming out to us that this empty tomb is not so empty? Today we're going to consider the story of the not-so-empty tomb. And we're going to consider each of the eyewitnesses by examining the evidence of Jesus' resurrection through their eyes. Why is it important to examine the evidence of a literal resurrection? Thank you so much for asking. Because there's power in believing. There's power in believing. In fact, Christianity hinges on whether or not the resurrection of Jesus actually took place. The Apostle Paul writes, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. The Gospels of Jesus Christ would be incomplete without the resurrection accounts of Jesus. Jesus didn't simply resurrect and ascend into heaven. The Lord continued proving his resurrection to multiple eyewitnesses for 40 days. 
Then he ascended. And so today we're going to consider the evidence of the not-so-empty tomb. Now, it was early on the first day of the week, what we in the Western world would refer to as Sunday. And though it's been debated by scholars as to whether or not this was 72 literal hours, what is certain is that in the Jewish worldview, part of a day could be considered a day. So since the Jewish day began at sundown on Friday, or began at sundown, then Friday would have been uh, begun uh, Thursday at sundown, and then Saturday, the Sabbath, would have begun sundown on Friday and Sunday. At, see, so it actually could have been the third day, and it was the third day. John's Gospel says it was early, meaning between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and while the other Gospels record several women coming to the tomb, John only mentions Mary by name as she specifically shares her eyewitness account. So it was dark. And the stone was rolled away. And apparently Mary, she peered into the tomb and she saw that Jesus' body was nowhere to be found. She had come to the tomb in grief. She wanted to properly anoint Jesus for burial. She didn't realize that Joseph of Arimathea and another fellow by the name of Nicodemus had already done that the night that Jesus died. And this is important. You see, these two secret followers of Jesus, they mixed around 75 to 100 pounds of aloe and spices and strips of linen and then they ceremonially mummified the corpse of Christ. So at first glance, all Mary noticed was that Jesus wasn't there. So she panicked and she ran to Peter and John and she said, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we we don't know where they put him. So Peter and John, they raced to the tomb. And the younger, more agile John, he arrives at the tomb first. He peers in and he's immediately struck by the fact that the burial strips are still in place. He bent over, looked at the strips of linen lined there, but he didn't go in. And I can just see a younger, better in shape John standing there looking as an older, fatter Peter comes huffing and puffing up the hill behind him. And maybe you all don't huff and puff, but I'm finding at 46 sometimes I huff and puff. Peter arrives at the tomb, pushes John out of the way, takes a look, goes inside. And verse 6 and 7 says, He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. So here's some questions I ask, and I think they're worth considering. If the body of Jesus had been stolen... Wouldn't the thieves want to keep the mummy wrappings on the corpse? Right? I mean, wouldn't you want to keep the mummy wrappings on the corpse? Wouldn't that make it a whole lot faster to get away? I mean, it would have been hard enough to get rid of the Roman guards or roll away a 2,000 pound stone, but to remove all of those wrappings as well? After all, these aren't loose fitting wrappings. It wasn't a sheet. These were strips of linen slathered in about 100 pounds of ointment wrapped around the body, and the ointment acted like a glue. The last thing that the thieves would have time to do is remove the wrappings and place them back into the shape of a corpse. Who's got that kind of time? And if that wasn't enough, the sudarion, which is the face covering that, that, that would have been used probably to help keep the mouth closed, well, that was neatly folded up and placed beside the lens. Clearly, the empty tomb is not so empty. 
Because inside the tomb were the empty wrappings of Jesus and the neatly folded Sudarium. Verse 8 says, finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and he believed. Now, verse 9 tells us that the disciples didn't fully understand from Scripture what had taken place. And, and, And the passage doesn't tell us when Peter believed. Probably not yet, but it does tell us that John believed. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. What did John see in the not so empty tomb that brought him to faith? In one word, order. Can you imagine, I want you to imagine your loved ones here. Can you imagine going to the graveyard to visit the grave of a loved one? Only to find that the the headstone had fallen over, the dirt had been emptied out of the hole, the grave vault opened, the coffin opened, and your loved one not in the coffin, but their clothes were still in the coffin, perfectly in place the last time that you saw them. You all remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? And when Jesus raised him, he ordered that the grave clothes be taken off Lazarus. Not so with Jesus. Apparently, the Lord literally came back to life, rising through the grave clothes, leaving them perfectly in order. Y'all, this was not a resuscitation. This was a resurrection. The body of Jesus was not there, but the grave was in order. Only the Lord can bring order to the chaos of death because the living God is a God of order. God spoke creation into existence and He ordered it. He ordered all people into nations. He ordered Hebrew slaves into a holy nation. And in death, God even orders resurrection. Clearly, the empty tomb is not so empty. Evidence is there to support a resurrection. The text tells us that John and Peter returned home, but Mary stayed behind. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white. Seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they put him. Have you ever cried so hard that it's difficult to see what is in front of you? Mary had experienced a deep trauma. It was dark. Her eyes were filled with tears. She was very confused. Yet in the midst of grieving, we see a second witness inside the not-so-empty tomb. Two angels. Now the word angel simply means messenger in the Greek. But we shouldn't be surprised to find angels at the empty tomb because angels appear throughout Scripture, including in the New Testaments, at the crucial times to announce God's plan. From the birth of Jesus to the announcement of the Holy City, we find angels announcing God's plan. They not only heralded the resurrection and showed up at the ascension, they even prophesied a second coming. Now seriously, one of you all asked me this question. What was the purpose of the two angels, one on each side? Thank you for asking me that question. It's a great question. And it took me like all year since I've been here to get to this point to answer it. The symbolism of two angels, one at the head and one at the foot where Jesus had been, is very significant, y'all. This is so cool. And I think this picture can help. This is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. 
I know, I know it's Easter Day. I shouldn't be talking about the Old Testament. But since you are trapped with me for a few more minutes, and since you're all dressed up, and most of you look pretty, I'll just say if you're paying attention. Okay, all of you look pretty. Hang with me because this is really cool. The top or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant had two angels on it, one on each side. The area between the angels is referred to as the seat of mercy. And it represented where God's throne was. Represented. In Exodus, the seat of mercy is where God literally says, I will meet you. Inside of the Ark, inside of this box, was the Torah, the Word of God, the manna, bread of heaven, and the budded staff of Aaron. And that represented the priestly line, those who intercede for the people with God. Now listen, I might just be a good old boy from northeast Tennessee, but I'm seeing some things here that maybe we ought to draw a conclusion or two about. Because inside of the tomb was the Word of God made flesh, who was the bread of heaven, And it's the high priest who intercedes with the Father, Jesus. And just like the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was intentionally empty because the living God cannot be kept. And because God in His mercy said, I will meet you. So too could the tomb not keep Jesus, the living God, from meeting all of us where we are in His mercy. And that's exactly what he does with Mary here, who's so grief-stricken that she could not consider the possibility of Jesus' resurrection. And that leads to our final Easter Day witness. It's the voice of mercy. The voice of mercy. Mary turned around. She saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was him. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you will put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now look, John believed that Jesus was resurrected without actually seeing him. The evidence in the tomb was enough for John. Peter had not yet come to believe because he had not yet seen the risen Lord himself. But later he would come to faith. Mary, having witnessed all that had taken place in the tomb, including the angels, was now face to face with the risen Christ. But she couldn't yet recognize him. It took one word, one word of mercy. Jesus' voice of mercy changed the woman's life forever. He said, Mary. And in hearing her name, Mary instantly recognized that the person she was talking to was Jesus. In calling out for Jesus, the seat of God's mercy, the resurrected Christ met Mary exactly where she was. And notice she didn't say Rabboni. She said Rabboni. Not a question, an exclamation mark. The tomb was not so empty and neither was the garden. Jesus had risen just as he said he would. And Mary, overcome with emotion, just grabbed hold of the Lord. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. 
How tempting it must have been for Mary to hold on to Jesus. But just as Mary required something tangible of Jesus in order to believe he had risen, so too would the rest of his followers. And for the next 40 days, the risen Christ made appearances to the faithful, resurrecting the souls of each disciple into life everlasting before he departed this world. But it all began with a not-so-empty tomb. A few weeks later, the resurrected Jesus would say this to his disciples about us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, the evidence of a literal resurrection is available to us in Scripture for our minds to seriously consider. So too is the evidence of nearly 2,000 years of Christian tradition. And lastly, we have the evidence of our personal experiences. In the words of the hymn, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. He lives within my heart. Beloved Easter people, do not hold on to Jesus, but go and share this good news. Christ is risen, and the not-so-empty tomb proves it. Alleluia. Amen. Let us pray.